0: Once again, welcome, so glad you're here. We're going to start a new series of messages today entitled Fight for Your Family. Now Nehemiah comes to Jerusalem to be the governor and Jerusalem is in shambles. The walls are knocked down, gates are burned with fire, people are discouraged and he believes God has put in his heart to rebuild the walls. And so he comes and there's all sorts of opposition. And it's really a picture of God rebuilding the walls of our lives and of our families. But at one point, as they're facing all kinds of opposition, he says this, remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, for your sons, for your daughters, for your wives, and for your homes. We want to talk about how to effectively fight for your family, for your sons and daughters, for your wife, for your home in the 21st century. Now, it may seem strange talking about the 21st century, fighting for your family, and jumping back 3,500 years to the book of Deuteronomy in their Bible, the fifth book of the Bible, chapter 30. Moses is writing this, talking to the children of Israel, And you may think that's 3,500 years old. Let me say this. The Bible is as alive today and as pertinent today as it was the day it was written. It's speaking to you and I today. And Moses writes, Jesus, I call heaven and earth today as witness against you. I've set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live. So God says there's a choice. Death, a curse, blessing, life. A, death and a curse. B, life and blessing. Then God says the answer is B. He says choose B so that you and your descendants may live. You and I live in the most individualistic society the world has ever seen. Right? It's all about me, it's my rights, what I want, what makes me happy, what makes me feel good. It's about me. Right? And we live in this society that tells us you're a rock, you're an island. And what you do is your business, it's nobody else's business because it's you, it's your body, it's what you want, and it doesn't affect anybody but you, and that's a bunch of baloney. That's just a bunch of baloney, all right? Because you are connected. You are connected. You're, you're connected to your family. You're connected to society. In fact, God looks at things so differently— than what we do. I just want to give you a few verses here. Exodus chapter 20. And you shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath, or that is in the waters under the earth. And you shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third fourth generation I love the next part, but showing mercy and loving kindness, in translation say, to thousands or to a thousand generations of those that love me and keep my commandment. So first of all, notice this, the blessing is like megatimes more powerful than the curse, right? But what you do does not just affect you. Deuteronomy 30, it says that both you and your descendants. Here, God says, and this is, this is like spiritual law, that what you do does not just affect you, it affects your children, your children's children, and your children's children to the third and fourth generation. You go and visit the doctor. You're going to get a life insurance policy. They're going to sit down with you. You're going to say, all right, are your parents alive? And you say, well, yes, they are. How old are they? Do they have any sicknesses, any diseases? Oh, one's dead. What did they die of? How old were they when they died? Your grandparents. Are they still alive? Uncles, aunts? Tell me about them. You know, are they still alive? Did they get sick? What sicknesses did they have? Here's what they know: they know that genetically you will have a predisposition towards certain sicknesses based on your family history. How many really? good go like this? You're going, okay, I understand that. All right. The exact same thing is true spiritually. All right? You will have a predisposition. God says the iniquity, right? The word iniquity means to be bent, right? How many of you have ever been in an area where a hurricane came through or a tornado came through and the trees are kind of like, they're bent. They're just kind of bent, right? Now, that's literally what happens. You become bent towards certain behaviors. Alcoholism, right? Uh, There's a... the, any, any addiction you can be bent towards, right? Uh, anger, divorce, family turmoil. It passes from generation to generation to the third and fourth generation. It's just a spiritual law. Just like there's a physical law, you have an inclination towards a certain thing. The word iniquity means to be bent so that children are bent in that direction. Now, you and I, In our society today, we view time, measure time based on years, months, weeks, days, right? But God doesn't do that. God measures time based on people and generations. For example, in Matthew chapter 1, where it gives a genealogy of Jesus, it says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David until the captivity of Babylon are 14 generations. From that captivity of Babylon to Jesus are 14 generations. God bases activity, he bases time on generations. Blessing comes based on generations. Uh, I shared this several years ago, but I wanted to, to do it again. I think this will clarify this for some people. This is a true story about two American families. One is the family of Max Juice who was an atheist and married an ungodly woman. They traced 560 descendants. 310 died as paupers, 150 became criminals, seven were murderers, 100 of them were known to be drunkards. more than half of the women were prostitutes. The descendants of Max Juice cost the United States government 1.2 million dollars in 19th century dollars. Jonathan Edwards was a contemporary of Max Juice, committed Christian, gave God first pl- place in his life, married a godly young woman. They traced 1,394 descendants. 295 graduated from college, 13 became college presidents. 65 became professors, three were elected as United States senators, three state governors, others were sent as, as foreign missionaries, 30 were judges, 100 were lawyers, one dean of an outstanding law school, 56 were doctors. One was the dean of a medical school. Seventy-five became military officers. One hundred were known missionaries, preachers, or prominent authors. Another 80 held some form of of public office. Three were mayors of large cities. One was the comp controller of the United States Treasury. And one was vice president of the United States. Not one of the descendants of the Edwards family was a liability to the government. Isn't that interesting? You think what you do just affects you? It affects your children. It affects your descendants. You are connected. So in Psalms 101 in verse two, David writes and he says, "'I will try to walk a blameless path, but how I need your help, especially in my own home where I long to act as I should. If there's any place that we need to do things right, it's at home. You know, I know a lot of people, they get home and think, well, I can just let my hair down and do whatever, right? You do whatever at work, right? But at home, this is where it is the most important, right? The King James says that I will behave wisely in a perfect way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the works of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. Now, notice, he's saying, I want to do it right in my house. And, and he mentions, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. How many of you know that computer can have some wicked? That television can have some wicked. But now, here's what it says. He said, I will not let it cling to me. Because what you see, it clings to you. It gets down on the inside of you. Some of you, you can remember images that you saw months ago, years ago, and decades ago. Right? They're cling to you. He says, you know, we need to make sure we're doing it right, and especially in our own home. In 2 Timothy 4, 7, Paul said, i fought the good fight. I finished the race. I've kept the faith. The Christian life is a fight. It is a fight. I have fought the good fight. From the moment you become a Christian until you go home to heaven, it's a fight. I like to say it from the womb to the tomb. You got to fight. It's not with guns and bullets or fists, but it's a fight to believe, to do, to embrace the truth. It is a fight to stand against the culture that is all around us. In 1 John 5:19, It says, we know positively that we are of God, and the whole world around us is under the power of the evil one. Other translations say, under the sway of the evil one. The whole world that is around us is under his sway. Now, the Bible mentions this about Lot. It says that his righteous soul was vexed daily as he saw the ungodly conduct around him. How many of you realize that our nation, we're like a post-Christian nation, right? When I say that, this is what I mean. I mean the, the, the morals, the direction of our nation, we are not following God. Amen. Let me just say this. I was proud of our president when he made today a day of prayer for the victims of the hurricane down in Houston, I thought, bravo, bravo, finally, finally somebody stepping up, all right? But we need to recognize the culture around us is not a godly culture, all right? That's why the Bible talks about your kingdom come, all right? We, we need to have that kingdom on the inside of us. We're in this world system, but we are not of this world system, all right? We're a part of a different kingdom. So in 1 Peter 5:8 it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Now, notice talking about the devil, it says your adversary. I know there's people that don't even believe there is a devil. Kind of like, well, that devil is just kind of like a word that they use for the corporate sum of all evil in the universe. No, there is a real devil. Jesus talked to him and rebuked him. Right? A, and the Bible says he is your enemy. And he goes about like a roaring lion. Do you, you, you know where he is? He, he is not in hell, right? He's not on a dark continent somewhere, right? He goes up and down your street. And he is seeking whom he may devour. Right now, who does he devour? He devours ignorant people, and he devours people who cooperate with him, who participate with him. See, if you participate with the devil, he believes you belong to him. That's what he believes. Now, now Jesus said this in Matthew 12. He said, now, when an evil spirit goes out of a man, it passes through dry or arid places. And then it says, I will return to my house. And he's talking about your body. He calls it my house. See, you, you participate and give the devil an inroad, he believes you belong to him. Jesus said in John 10, 10, that the thief does not come except to steal, to kill, and to destroy. He said, but I've come that you might have life and have it abundantly. So what we need to do as Christians is we need to recognize that we have authority, Again, 1 Peter 5:8, be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Verse 9, resist him steadfast in the faith. So in Luke 10, 19, Jesus said, Behold, I give you authority to trample on serpents and scorpions over all the power of the enemy, serpent and scorpions, all the power of the enemy that represents Satan and demons, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Jesus said he gives you authority. Now, there is a difference between power and energy and authority. If we have a semi-truck coming down the road loaded to bear, 65 miles an hour, it has a lot of power or energy. But we get a 110-pound female police officer in her uniform with her badge, And she just sees that truck coming, and she just lifts her hand and goes like that. She doesn't even look. She just pays attention to everything else because she knows she has authority. She doesn't have the power, the energy to stop it, but she's got the authority to stop it. She doesn't even think about it. She's just, done. I'm going to look at something else. Take care of something else. Now, what Jesus is saying is this. He says, I give you authority. Now, you can feel power and energy. But you don't feel authority, right? When you have authority, spiritually speaking especially, you have authority when you believe you have authority. When you believe that Jesus said, I give you authority. And notice it's over all the power of the enemy. Whatever he's got, you have authority to put a stop to. And Jesus said, nothing will by any means hurt or harm you. James 4, submit to God. How do you do that? Submit to his word. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. And in Philippians, it talks about the the, the weapon that God has given us when we resist the devil. It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him, given him a name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, those on earth, those under the earth. In heaven, that's God's realm. On earth, that's the human realm. Under the earth represents the demonic realm. In three worlds, every knee bows at the name of Jesus. All right. So, Isaiah 54, verse 17. No weapon formed against you will prosper. Every tongue that rises up against you in judgment, you shall condemn. Now, notice it says here no weapon. And then it tells us what that weapon is, every tongue that rises up against you. In other words, the weapons that rise against you very often are words. They're words, right? Words like this. You've always been a failure and you always will be. You'll never succeed. You will never get free from that addiction. You'll never be healed. You'll never have a normal life. Your family is always going to be a wreck. Those are words. Now, what the Bible says you need to do when those words are spoken, they rise up against you, it says that what you need to do, you need to condemn that. You need to rise up in judgment and you need to condemn the word that is spoken against you. Uh, Very soon, because it happens every year, in the next couple of months, you're going to be listening to the news and they're going to tell you it's flu season. It's flu season, and if you don't get a flu shot, you will get the flu. I'm going to tell you right now what's going to happen. They're going to go, it's flu season, and I'm going to say, not at the Vanderklok house. Not at my house. Right? You condemn that word. That person says, you're never going to succeed. You say, my God always leads me in triumph in Christ. See, every word is a seed. Mark. Jesus said the sower sows the word. That word is sown. And as you listen to words, they bring faith or they bring doubt. We need to make sure that we realize what the Bible says, that death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it will eat the fruit thereof. In other words, there is no such thing as a non-working or non-producing word. Every word, it's a seed. And it can bring faith, or it can bring doubt into your heart. Now, I want to give you a couple examples of Jesus dealing with this exact thing, doing exactly what the Bible says to do over in Isaiah. No weapon formed against you shall prosper. Every tongue that rises up against you, every word spoken against you, you shall condemn. You condemn that word. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is from me. Now listen, this isn't something you're going to do when you die. When you die, you're going to be in heaven. You aren't going to have an enemy. You aren't going to have weapons being spoken against you. This is for today. Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. And raised on the third day, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This will not happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, He's going to condemn it. Get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me. For you're not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. When someone spoke the wrong word to Jesus, Jesus answered. He condemned. He said, No, that is not what's going to happen. Matthew 12. Now when the Pharisees heard, they said, this fellow casts out demons, except by Beelzebub, the prince of demons. So they said the reason Jesus is casting out demons is because Beelzebub, the prince of the demons, is in him. By the way, Beelzebub actually means the, the Lord of flies. But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, you want going to condemn it, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. Every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself, and his kingdom will not stand. But if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they'll be your judges. And by the way, the sons weren't casting anything out. But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come unto you. Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first bind the strong man, then he will plunder his house. He who is not with me is against me. He who doesn't gather with me scatters abroad. Right? Therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will forgive men, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. He says, either make the tree good, and its fruit good, or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad. You brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things. An evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things. But I say to you that every idle word men may speak, they will give an account on the day of judgment. For by your words you'll be justified and by your words you'll be condemned. When they said, you cast out spirits by Beelzebub, the, de- the prince of demons, Jesus didn't say, oh, well, that's no big deal. He condemned it. He got down talking about how powerful our words are. He said, just a, there are no idle words. You think, you think you say something, it doesn't make any difference? James said, a word may seem of no account, but it can accomplish nearly anything. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And one of the things that we need to do to fight for our family is we need to speak up when, something is, when a word is spoken, when something produces doubt in your heart. You need to speak up. I remember listening many years ago to Lester Summerall, one of the great missionaries of the 20th century. He said that he was in Asia and he was in a meeting and he was walking into the meeting. He came down the middle aisle. He was going to be speaking that night. And a woman came up to him and in perfect English said, there is a black angel in you and a white angel in me. He said immediately he discerned what was happening. He said, I confronted him. I said, no. He said, he said, no. He said, the white angel is with me and the black angel is with you. And I command you, come out of her. Power of God hit her. He said, the power of God hit the whole place. And every lost person in the place ran to the front to get saved. You know, when, when the enemy shows up, you need to rise up and condemn, in judgment, condemn what is said. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. This is what Christians are supposed to do. We're supposed to speak. I mean, you think, you think I'm, you're like, you're kind of crazy, Pastor. I think you're crazy. You're crazy for not talking. All right? How many know, like, Jesus is our example? Amen. Jesus goes up to a fig tree, and the Bible says he answered it. Hello? Yes, sir. He spoke to the tree. Yep. You know, that, that tree didn't physically speak to him, but it did, there was something that was communicated, and he answered. He answered it. He answered it. All right? So, over to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 19. I've got the Amplified Translation here, and it says, so this is Paul praying. I, I, I love this. I was thinking about this this week, all right? Now, typically, when you pray or I pray, I, I'm learning to pray better, all right? But this is how we typically pray. We say, oh, God, help them. Oh, God, deliver them. Oh, God, give them grace. God, do this. God, do that. God, God, do. God, do. God, do. God, do. How many can you relate to some of that? Wave at me. Okay. Now, this is, this is the Apostle Paul praying. All right. Now, he doesn't do any of that. And, and I think he knows more about prayer than me or you. Amen. Will you agree? This is what he said So that they may know and understand what is the immeasurable and unlimited and surpassing greatness of his power in and for us who believe as demonstrated in the working of his mighty strength when he raised Christ from the dead. So he doesn't pray for God to do anything. He says, God, open their eyes so they can see what you've done and what power is already working in them. So he doesn't think that the answer to our problems is for God to do something. He thinks the answer to our problems is that we understand what God has already done. That's what he thinks the problem is. That we just need to find out what has God already done. As demonstrated in the working of his mighty strength when he raised Christ from the dead, right? One translation says that he exerted the power that's working in us is the power that he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So, so okay, so, so, so God creates the universe, right? And he says, let there be light, right? And the universe begins to leap into existence, right? right? now, they tell us the observable universe, the end that they know about, is 93 billion light years away, right? That there are 10 times more stars in the sky that we know about, okay? Then there are grains of sand in all the beaches and all the deserts on earth, Say that again. There are 10 times more stars than there are grains of sand in all beaches and all deserts in the world. And he said, let there be, and it was like, no big deal. But when he raised Christ from the dead and did everything for you, he exerted it was a greater thing that god did for you in christ in his death burial and resurrection than it was to speak a universe into existence and paul says i want you to know what god has done right? goodspeed translation says this the surpassing greatness of his power is for us who believe here's my favorite how tremendous is the power available to us who believe. Another translation. How vast the resources of his power open to us who believe. So Paul is saying we don't need to get God to do something new. What we need to do is we need to have our spiritual eyes open so we know what he already did. And if we find out what he already did, and we connect our faith to what he already did for us, we do not have a problem in the world that is not taken care of. Because what he did, the Bible says, he obtained for us a complete salvation. That means nothing was left out. In fact, in the book of Peter, it says that, let me just close with this. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge. How does this grace and peace come? the knowledge of God and of our Lord Jesus Christ, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. So, Paul is praying and he says that he has given, or has granted to us everything that pertains to life and godliness. Life has to do with your normal, everyday, work day, family life. Godliness has to do with your spiritual life. And he has given. I was always bad at English. But I think I've got this down. Has given or has granted is past tense. Means it's already done. We're trying to get God to do something. We say, God, save them. What do we want him to do? Send Jesus again? Go to the cross? Get whipped? Get nails in his hands and his feet? Be buried? Whip the devil? Be raised the third day? And ascend back into heaven? What do we God's like, I already did it. All they need to do is accept it. It's done deal. All right? All that pertains to... Life and godliness he has granted to us. So that's why Paul prays different than we pray. He said, God, just open their eyes so they can see the greatness of your power that is available to them. The same power that you exerted when you raised Jesus from the dead, it's available when we understand He's already done everything for us, and we grab hold of faith, but faith with that, we can grab hold of what he has done for us already.